You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my cool Canadian partner, Lisa Schneer. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Carlos. All right, folks. We changed our format a little recently. Love to get your feedback. Reach out to us over LinkedIn or wherever else you want to do it. Let us know how we're doing. And for today's hot topic, we're talking about switching our sales dialect to a business dialect. In technology, so many sales professionals lead with product or the technical side of the sale. How can we also uncover that business conversation that we all desperately need? And to help us out with this topic today, we have Eric Shaver, managing partner at Kinsey Partners and longstanding sales leader. Welcome to the show, Eric. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Eric, we start every podcast with uh, that one question, which is what's something about you that most of the people that only know you through business might be surprised to know about? Something you're passionate about. Yeah, so I, I, so I grew up in Manhattan, right? And I was a subway child and I lived the life of concrete and tall buildings and, 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 and all that. And I didn't realize till about 10 years ago that I had a significant two-wheel problem. So I've gotten a, into mountain biking to the point where it might actually be a bit unhealthy, a little obsessive. And whenever I get a chance, I'm out on the trail. And then I saw Ewan McGregor's Long Way Up. If you haven't seen that documentary, it's totally worth it. And I realized, well, wait a second. If you have fun on an unmotorized two-wheeler, why not get a motorcycle? So I got my first motorcycle two years ago, completely ill-advised, never rode one in my life, an adventure bike, of course. And so now I'm pursuing that. Anybody who knows me would probably think, no, no, you don't seem like the type. But yeah, that's my, that's my big secret. Is that boring? Should I have had something a little bit more interesting? No, not, a, not boring at all. No, I think it's interesting that you, uh, you know, two years ago decided to learn how to ride a motorcycle. It's ill-advised. Ask anyone except other people who ride motorcycles. But ironically, my wife had no problem with it. So I started checking to see if she upped on my life insurance. She is not. So I guess it was just complete faith that I will not kill myself. I was thinking about getting a, a new mountain bike, but I think I want one that's battery powered. No, Carlos, don't go gently into the fading of the light. Only get that when you need the assist. I saw a 70-year-old killing it on the trails. And I was like, man, he's definitely. And then it, when he pulled up, he had a specialized and it was battery assist. So I was like, damn, that's what I need. Don't get augmented until it's required. I, there's that old expression, you got to earn your turns. You don't look old enough yet to have to depend on an electrical battery, but I'll leave that to you. Well, so Eric, you have trained tens of thousands of sales professionals around the world. When you first meet them, are there any common mistakes you notice in their approach? Oh my God, this, how much time do we have? I know, I'm jumping right in. No, this is a big one. I tell you one thing that I learned, you know, being a career salesperson, my world was my job and the people I managed and you just assumed for everybody else. And you didn't know quite what the statistical, you know, commonality was across salespeople. When I started doing this and I started getting out into the field and I was, again, I, I've done this in 33 countries, which gave me a really interesting view of regional habits and how we do things versus global. And a few things I learned is that everyone has the same training. Everyone has the same learning. We don't get a degree. We are shunned by higher education. We don't get a degree in enterprise B2B sales. That's the common thread with all of us. It's starting to come along, but it's still very rare. 
So everyone's starting from the same point. Everyone starts their career as Tommy Boy. I don't care what you say. We all start as Tommy Boy in enterprise B2B sales. We don't know what we're doing. We're faking it. And then we get the training we get. We get sales training. We get learn how processes work. We learn discovery and we learn qualification. We learn advancement, all this stuff. The one common thread, the one thing I see that everybody does the same way, which is also what we tend to get wrong, is that here it is. We all speak in an unmistakable sales dialect, irrespective of who we're working for. We're all taught how to speak like salespeople. And that's one of the big things I see. But another one of the big things I see is that we don't know how to say no. Sandler tried to get us to do that. David Sandler brought in the no, and everybody's like, that's fascinating. We should do it. It gives us some dignity, but very few people adopted it because it's painful. We tend to say yes way too much. And what salespeople haven't learned to do successfully is to say maybe, is to say, we understand that you want that demo. We understand you want that POS proof of concept. We understand that you want that whiteboarding session. We understand that you want us to do these things. And instead of saying yes, or let's schedule it or confusing interest and activity for something that will turn into revenue, we should say, we hear you. And here are our requirements to commit resources to that. Maybe, you know, we think, oh, well, if you don't say yes, you're saying no. It should, from right out of the gate, we should be saying maybe, but then presenting, here are our requirements to commit the very limited SGNA investment this company makes in its go-to-market. Here's our criteria, not just responding to yours and delivering. So the sales dialect is one of the biggest things, right? As soon as someone knows you're a salesperson, they have a motion that they're used to. I manage salespeople like mushrooms because that's what you have to do, right? Keep us in the dark and cover us with manure, you know, need to know basis. And I expect you to deliver when I ask for something and you're going to say yes. If you don't say yes, I have options. And therefore I'm going to go to someone who will say yes, because you're too hard to work with. So it's not just, oh, I'm going to adopt a maybe mentality. If you adopt a maybe, you better have a really cogent, strong, meaningful argument for why you are not just going to deliver what they're asking for just because they asked. And this is, this is systemic. I've seen this all over the globe because the leading indicator of bad sales behavior is a thin pipeline. We'll say yes to almost anything if we're not at our pipeline multiple, because people think it's a revenue problem for us is that we're constantly chasing revenue. We're under constant revenue pressure. We're under pipeline pressure much more often than we're under revenue pressure, right? Weekly, we're hearing about our pipeline, shortfall, delay, lag, et cetera. Sorry, big topic. But I'd say those are two of the biggest things that get in our way is that we don't know how to speak in a business dialect, right? This is B2B, not S to B. And we also don't know how to say, here's our requirements. We're not going to say yes just because you asked. Can you give us a little background? How'd you get here? How'd you become so proficient in this area? And uh, what, you know, what was your journey at this point? Because I think our listeners will really enjoy that. How'd I get here? Yeah, same way you get to Carnegie Hall. Yeah, a lot of practice, a lot of failure, a lot of Tommy Boy events. So yeah, so I mean, I, I started my career like everybody else did. Economics degree from a state school. When I started working, the value to the marketplace was next to nothing without a higher degree or going into the economics field, which doesn't pay very well. So I realized really quickly, the only way I was going to make any decent money in the Boston area and afford this lifestyle was to get into software sales. I had a friend who made a ton more money than I was making doing something else. And I said, you're an idiot and you're making four times as what I'm making. I can definitely like make that much. So 19 years of doing that. Although I did take some interesting really not deliberate paths, right? I started in the typical larger software company in a territory, doing my thing, got promoted to manager, put enough time in and do fairly well. That's going to happen. Then the internet came along and that old, and I was in a privately held software company that was extremely successful and wasn't going public anytime soon. 
And I had a really successful team, them, not me, they were in a really hot space and I started losing them all, the internet startups, because they were off to make their fortune, right? They said, well, are we going to go public? I'm like, I don't think that's in the cards. And so they were all hearing the siren song of getting that island next to Richard Branson, right? And I did the same thing. I said, okay, let me try this early, but I want to go early stage and get real shares, which is hard to do in sales because, you know, you're never earliest. You got to come up with a product first. And then I had this dubious honor of being asked in nine person startups to go with the CEO to VC meetings, to seek A rounds of funding because we needed funding. These were bootstrapped companies where I got 2% of the company, you know, it was that early. And then I realized I was an infant in business conversations. I, VCs, I like, I saw their facial expression change after one minute or two minutes of a 20 minute meeting because they weren't looking to understand the technology. They wanted to understand the path to liquidity. They want to understand why our addressable market is what it is and how we were going to capture that revenue over what period of time. How are we going to spend their money actively to get that next round? I realized I had no practical business experience. Luckily, I had a CEO who took Harvard Business School trained, of course, who took mercy on me and really mentored me in a lot of this stuff. And I realized I needed to have business skills just to get through that. We didn't have unlimited marketing and go-to-market budgets, so we had to be really careful with the money we were spending trying to acquire revenue. So there was no Forex pipeline, right? It was not this stagnant pond at Forex. It was a 1.3 to 2.3 constantly turning, and we had a lot of criteria to divest if we saw any indication that we were wasting our very precious SG&A. So it gave me a completely different mindset. Fast forward, multiple startups. None of them had big exits. I didn't have my island next to Richard Branson. Global financial crisis hit, and I started this company with two other people that I worked with. We were in this other startup that had a massive cut. It was, I have an idea. Let's teach the stuff that we never learned, right? We started licensing somebody else's stuff. It was really good stuff, but I realized very quickly it wasn't enough to really close the gaps. None of us speak Excel. None of us can go toe-to-toe with a, with a named account executive, CEO, CFO, and COO. We're all budget-dependent. So I was on this path. Luckily, I got into SAP's bloodstream really early. And I hate prospecting, even though I teach it. It's painful. And so I, I was striving to say, I got this massive company I can work with. How do I you know, work with as much of them as possible and just you know, build the wallet share? That was the main path is I got this beautiful environment where I could work directly with really experienced, very talented value engineer and industry principals and business architects. And it was this beautiful place. And at the time I worked with Gartner and I worked with other companies as well, but this is the entire company. It's me, Muhammad and Miyamoto in the corner. That's it. So I don't scale. That's how I got here. But people ask me, how did you get such fluency with corporate finance and engaging executives in their language? And I said, I've got this mystical power. I can read. I was curious. I didn't like feeling foolish. And so I read and I educated myself and then proved it out by working in real time with sales teams, with, with the people at that level, with executives and realized, oh my God, this common language, this business language is not complicated and it's not hard to learn. It's just new and it scares us. So a lot of it's been trial and error, working with amazing resources beyond salespeople and just being vulnerable and using it in the field until it became second nature. There is a curve. There's a painful curve but it's not that long. It scares the hell out of us, but it's not as long as we think. So Eric, as you were saying that, I'm, I'm trying to think about a lot of young companies and then mid-sized companies and large companies, especially the earlier on ones, you get founders that obviously invented the next mousetrap. So all they want to talk about is 
we got to educate the market on how the product works and how we're so different and all the training you get. I mean, we have um, one of our partners was at HP a hundred years ago, it feels like, and he talks about, you know, he had like nine weeks of product training. His first meeting, he just threw up all over him. Let me tell you what we do. How do you get to having a business dialogue kind of type of conversation when they just fill your head about product feature function side of it? Yeah, so I have a massive problem with the sales orthodoxy, right? Because the sales orthodoxy hasn't really changed in any meaningful way since we got PSS, personal selling skills. You go way back to the 30s and 40s. And it's the same. It's what you're talking about. We, whether we're a startup or we're a very mature company, that we've got to know our product. We have to know how to talk about its capabilities. We've got to show people what this solution does. And that's all really important for the middle of the org chart. That's all really important for the people who live in products, care about products, have to operationalize products to meet the company's needs. And everything over rotates to product knowledge. Even I've seen CEOs and startups go into meetings with COOs at prospects and customers and turn into a sales rep. They open their laptop and start showing the product. It's like, what the hell are you doing? They don't care about that. I mean, they don't care, right? They pay people to care. The problem is, is that even today, you see such an over-rotation on you have to know your products and it's dooming salespeople to the middle of the org chart where products live and where people care and operationalize products. And what is so funny, you get these companies, even startups, my heart's in startups. My head is obviously in big business because startups don't have any money, but I love to help startups. But the founders don't act in their meetings when they're in front of prospects and customers the way they did with the VCs. The VCs wanted to hear about, show us your total addressable market. Show us the revenue curve you believe that you can capture. Show us how you're going to get there. Show us how, what is the value that you're bringing to the market that the market doesn't currently have? And what's the business reason for doing this? They get their funding and all of a sudden it becomes product, product, product. The most important thing that everyone has to realize is, I mean, this is, this is controversial, but if I was running the zoo and I'm not, but if I was, I would eliminate the word budget from every salesperson's vocabulary. Gone. You can't even use it. If a prospect or a customer wants to use it, fine. If that's one of their funding sources, let them tell you that. But we have become so dependent on budget. We query about budget. We try to guide people to budget. And now I am talking about strategic B2B assets, right? If you sell something that is fully operationalized, funded, and depreciated within one fiscal year, then fine. You should be talking about budgets because that's all you have to work with. But most people at big SaaS infrastructure platform as a service companies and beyond are selling assets that need to be operationalized and funded for five years to get the full strategic value that they're designed to create. And budget has nothing to do with that conversation. You can't help someone in the fiscal year that you're talking to them because it's going to take two and a half years just to hit your payback period. So why the hell are we talking about budgets? But salespeople have been so conditioned and it's worked its way up the org chart. Do you have budget? Can you find budget and all that? Unfortunately, this requires that we go beyond our sales assets, go beyond the artifacts, go beyond the sales plays that the organization keeps throwing at us and say, that's not enough for me to get the capital, capital meaning money, that we are asking them to commit. That is, you know, I see companies suddenly for a one-year deal to pilot, to try it out on a five-year asset because they got trapped in the budget conversation or didn't know how to sell beyond it. This is huge. Startups especially, I've seen so many of these companies where the, the executives forget 
the meeting they had to get their initial funding that you have to take now, same type of conversation. And then, and this goes way beyond startups, right? I even see this with the largest of enterprises. Only the value engineers know how to talk about money. That's usually it. Nobody else knows how to, even, even I've seen executives not know how to talk about money in the context of not what we want to take from you. We're not selling you on the money you're spending. We're selling you on the cash flows that these assets create that are compelling versus alternative uses of the capital you have to spend because that's what executives want to know. And that's all very, that can be figured out. In fact, it has to be figured out or you're stuck with only the money that's in the market that fiscal year, which is a small percentage of the total addressable market that you can sell to. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here because <laughs> last uh, week, I think I said no less than three times that nobody cares who we are or what we do. They care what we solve because we're all in this similar business. But we talk about the fact that understanding and connecting to a business imperative is going to get funded. Anyway, I'm with you. And like, if we could just eliminate that bad B word. And if I hear one more person tell me they're qualifying with Bant, I'm going to lose it. The very least we should have learned can't, right? Cash authority need timing. But even that, qualification regimes drive corrupted responses and corrupted pipeline. They're preloaded to get people to lie. No one is going to tell you honestly what their budget is, who has actual authority if it's not them, what their compelling event is, because that will all... If you, they give you that, you're going to use that against them when it's time to negotiate. And especially in the world of enterprise assets and technology, it's not a question of will we get a discount, it's a question of how much. So, you know, this whole notion, like, this, I hate the word discovery, hate the word discovery, right? Because when a salesperson, discovery in and of itself is an important thing. When a vendor is discovering, everyone knows what we're doing. We're trying to discover ways to take your money, Right. <laughs> We're not trying to discover ways to optimize your shareholder value and whether or not we can be part of that. Every second I spend with you, I got a manager saying, how'd it go? Are they qualified? How much revenue are we going to see? Why are you focused on them if you don't think they're on profile? There's so much preloading of corruption in our pipelines and our motion is where all this starts. We still need information, right? And the way I look at it is I need information to decide where I spend my resources and time. And they need information to see if we're worth spending their resources and time. So whether you call it discovery or not, I mean, I don't know what word you want to use, but I always talk about, I would love to have a conversation to see if I could actually help you. And then it's really about understanding them more. And what I find is if I'm truly curious about them and their business, it turns into a great conversation. But you also got to be asking the right questions of the right people. Asking someone in mid-management about when you say fiscal 25 and they go, what? then you know you're talking to the wrong person. The funniest line I ever got is I was listening to your CEO on your last analyst call and he was saying, and someone was like, how did you do that? How did you listen to their, the analyst? Like, okay, I'm definitely talking to the wrong individual. But that individual might have a vote. It's a no vote and it might be more of a technical one, but you got to realize it. Hey, I want to jump on something you said earlier about pipeline. I like being controversial. 3X, 4X, 5X. I think pipeline could be a whole bunch of horse bucky. How do we create real pipeline is my question back to you. The first thing is, you're right. If the company says our requirements are to work in this, to be a salesperson here, you need a 4X pipeline. You need to maintain it. If something comes out, you got to bring it back to that, that level, that water level. So if you tell a salesperson you need a 3X pipeline or 4X pipeline, they will give you a 3 or 4X pipeline because the beatings continue until morale improves, right? It's like, okay, if you don't have it, you got to get it. 
And we're smart as salespeople. I got to keep my manager at bay because this is a painful conversation. It's not the pipeline may be corrupt. It's how much of the pipeline is corrupt because that is the reality. Every sales rep has two pipelines or two funnels. There's the beautiful core of what's real. And then there's the ballast that keeps my manager off my back. We spend our time and energy we believe is real. And we just touch and maintain this stuff that isn't real because that's a requirement of my job. But the real question is, what should we be working from a business perspective? So in other words, what should happen, and it almost never happens this way, it's backwards, is that the pro forma business case should be done upfront. That should be a requirement for engagement. It's look, we know you want a demo. Thanks for asking. We get this question a lot. In order for us to even consider allocating resources to this task, that's just a task that has to be part of a project. We have to understand, is this a project that we both should be working? The buy side doesn't call it an opportunity. They call it due diligence. They call it a project in terms of determining whether or not we should fund and operationalize these assets. And they're not worried about the costs of the software and the implementation nearly as, as much as they're worried about how much does this disrupt cash flow coming from the business processes this is going to touch. That's the bigger set of risk, that this doesn't create change in anything. It may create a drag. So what we should be doing before we consider anything pipeline worthy is saying, have we had the discussion around what is the business reason, the business imperative for considering these assets versus alternatives? And unless we understand what the business is trying to accomplish, what internal rate of return that associates with these assets, because that's what the CFO is going to look at versus alternatives. Unless we understand what you're trying to change in your business operations, we're demoing into oblivion. We have no idea what we're doing, neither do you. And so you may think you know, and you might be right, but that still doesn't justify us considering this something that's worthy of committing the money to. Every sales rep should operate as if I have a limited SG&A budget that I can spend for me or my people. And imagine if that was the case, if we were paid on margin, above and beyond an SG&A budget, imagine how clean the pipelines would be. So wait a minute, this is my money now, right? You're paid up bookings and revenue, everything's free. We're gonna throw as many demos as we have to. We're gonna have people work on that RFP. We're gonna do all that because there's no penalty. And it's not that we're stupid or it's not that we're wasteful. It's, we don't have a lot of control. The only way you can have that business conversation up front is if you've got pro forma financial models to use to guide, right? So actually to the point, Carlos, we can do discovery, but please don't call it that. When a sales rep says we need to do some discovery, it creates an immediate predictable sales stimulus creates conditioned buy side responses. Sales rep wants to do discovery. They're going to come in here with a clipboard, bring nothing, ask a million questions, go on a fishing expedition. I'm going to do discovery without saying discovery, right? This is the business dialect, right? The transition from discovery from a sales dialect to a business dialect is we both need to assess the business justification for committing expensive resources, SG&A on both sides, to doing due diligence on this. And unless we agree on that, we can't commit the resources. Right? That's how you tell if someone's serious or not. If they're like, that's a good point. We should actually do that. You're right. This could be expensive. If they're just using you for free consulting and price shopping, which is what most people in the market are doing, they're going to lie to you and they're going to tell you they're serious. Well, just give us this one demo. Let's get a better understanding of this, and then we'll take this to our executives. We promise we'll bring you. Really? No. In most cases, that's not what happens. And so we don't believe we have the agency to do that. Why? Because we haven't been given the narratives and the assets to support that kind of motion. 
but we can do that right now if we just looked over here versus where we've been looking. So, Eric, I got to ask, because we're talking about this from a sales skills salesperson perspective. How do you feel, though, about how our buyers have been trained to expect a certain experience? They want the demo because that's what they know. That's what they expect. And I know going back to your point of you're probably talking to the wrong person or you're not high enough up in the organization to have that kind of conversation. But I do think that there's an experience that buyers have been trained to have when they're being sold to. Amen, sister. Without question, right? We have conditioned, vendors have conditioned the buying community that this is what you do and this is what we do. So we have fulfilled the expectation. All you have to do is ask and then we will deliver. And if we do any form of friction to that process, well, we need to know a few things first, or we have to actually you know, meet with these people or whatever it might be, they have learned, you know what? If you're not prepared to deliver this, we're just gonna go talk to your competitors. They're so much easier to work with. I don't know why you need all these things. Technology has become commoditized. Gone are the days where Oracle was the only real database vendor, SAP was the only real ERP vendor, Microsoft was the only desktop, et cetera. Amazon was the only cloud. Technology has become commoditized and it's going happening more and more and more. So the old way of doing things when, when the vendors had leverage, and we still did it, right? We still gave things up way too easily, are going away. And we have to condition the buy side that our time and money, our time and energy, our time and money, our people are not free. We cannot bill you on a time and materials basis. Fair enough. But we need commitments from you. Sales is not words. Sales is physics. It's sales is the study of motion. It's not what you tell me that I care about. It's the actions you're taking. It's actions we're taking. It's proof of movement that means you're serious. And we get so many words that mean nothing. Unfortunately, it's painful. We have to condition the buy side that not all up in here. You don't just get to ask me and I do it. But there's this great phrase I learned years ago, and I love it. And that is, real deals are not fragile. And by extension, real intent is not fragile. It should be able to stand up to, look, we're happy to engage. If you are serious about us, we both have requirements. We both have to justify. This isn't monopoly money we're paying with. Every second we put, in, we put into something that's not going to happen is taking away from something that might. And we feel like we can't give them our criteria. It's, look, there's a the pervasive problem here. The leading cause of bad sales behavior is a thin pipeline. And the biggest thing I, I, I think was a mistake operationally in sales was the proliferation of BDRs and SDRs because that now took away the responsibility of prospecting from AEs or it lightened the load considerably. One of the most critical skills a salesperson needs is originating pipeline and revenue because it's hard, but you really have to know why your customers give you money and why a prospect might. And you've got to make that case in really fragile moments. And waiting to engage an executive till I'm halfway through a cycle is ridiculous. If we believe that there's not enough budget to pay for what we're asking for, and there isn't, salespeople weren't taught if you're not, well, and I, you've got to give a replacement if you, I take the word budget away. The replacement for budget is IRR. It's one of them, right? Internal rate of return. Because now that's a five, three to five year discounted cash flow metric, not a cost metric. It's a return metric. But capital allocation selling is what we have to learn. If we're selling into multi-year forward-looking decision-making, that's strategic. Allocation of capital is a CEO requirement. Burning budgets in a fiscal year is not. Eric, I'm 100% with you. But when I look back, 
It's not a but. When I think about bad sales behavior and I think about, man, why aren't more organizations doing this? And my question to you is, I think it's because of sales leadership. So many organizations, we said it earlier, hey, we need a 5X pipeline. Okay, I'll fill that graph up with something in there. No worries, boss. Your other point, hey, we need to slow down this deal and really question whether this is a good use of our resources. What? You're not going after that big kahuna account? I mean, have I ever heard, my other favorite is, hey, we got an RFP. Aren't you excited? We have an opportunity. We got an opportunity to fill out a bunch of paperwork and waste time. So how do you get an organization's leadership to buy in, Eric, on what you're talking about and really make it a cultural change and back up their salespeople? Yeah, so leadership is us, right? Leadership is us who got promoted, right? And who were really good at doing what we did, which was still budget-based selling. It was still the orthodoxy everybody's been following. And a small percent actually figured out a different way, but a lot of them were just really good at it really good, very efficient, and just did it better than everybody else, but still was doing the similar thing, right? High cost, low yield, but it was marginally better. You're getting promoted and, or were very professional or really knew how to manage up really, really well. Something I never learned and all this stuff. But the interesting thing is whenever I engage a chief sales officer, a chief revenue officer, none of this is lost on them. They say, yes, we have to be selling to the executives in a better way. We have to have, be having more business conversations. We need to be talking about shareholder value in a specific and more granular way. How do our assets translate to shareholder value realization through, are we an EBITDA margin play? Are we uh, reducing SG&A as a percentage of revenue? Are we a revenue growth play? Do we optimize working capital and therefore feed more free cash flow, especially in a rising interest rate environment where this may be the new normal? These are business conversations that is not, are not lost on any executive. However, how do we make the shift? How do we create the change? We can't let go of one rope and grab the other because that little bubble in our, the revenue you know, loss of we're not working what we know in favor of working what we should be doing. Well, how do we tell our shareholders we're going to have a disruption to revenue or our investors or anybody else? And teaching salespeople this stuff, you don't solve this problem by just fixing the endpoint. Because there's a massive supply chain and, and an operational overlay that has to change with it. The messaging and positioning we're getting has to be more towards value driver-based performance and the, what the executive narrative is. We need the value engineering teams to put those financial models into assets and artifacts and into the narrative flow. So we replace the sales dialect with a business dialect. We have to have leadership saying we have to operationalize this, which may create it will create some disruption. So how do we make sure we're maintaining the revenue streams we currently are capturing, but also onboard this motion? I would put forth that you can cut randomly 10% of the organization's pipeline and have minimal disruption to revenue. If you ask any head of business operations or sales ops, what percentage of the aggregate annual pipeline from just entering to closure actually closes? You ask the salespeople, oh, like 33% or something like that. Business ops goes 16.7. That's what it actually is. But because of over-assignment and because we have Pareto economics here, we still can hit our numbers or get close to them. But that loss rate, let's just say you're in the magical world of 33% closure on a pipeline. That means 67% of your energy, effort, and SG&A for that fiscal year is loss. We thought, because your pipeline should be for the fiscal year in which we're forecasting it. 
would you ever take those odds in Monte Carlo, Macau, or Vegas? I'm going to belly up to a table with a 33% win rate. I mean, the reason why you've got two zeros in roulette, it gives the, the house a 51% chance of winning, and that's enough. It's just the whole system needs to be flushed out. This needs to change because it's not getting any better. It's like, it's like the national debt. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. And this, I say this for the Canadians to have a little fun with this. You know, as long as people are willing to buy your debt, you can ignore it. But when they stop, that's a problem. That's called defaulting. And there's a default coming due at some point if you don't start to see this shift. And it's all but for, this can all be done now. Bringing your business cases in your, your directional cash flow models that have been proven by existing customers or being realized by existing customers can start to find its way into sales narratives. And you just have to teach sales. What I learned doing this for the last 14 years, and I say this with love, being part of the tribe, salespeople don't, this is a big enablement problem. Salespeople don't say, tell me what to know, and then I'll figure out how to change my operating motion. They say, look, we're really busy. You put me in a room for a day and a half, I'm going to be passive aggressive because I've learned I'm not going to get a lot that I can make money from. Tell me what to say. If, you, if I'm not saying it right, tell me what to say and I'll try it. I'll compare it to my current narratives. If I like it, I'll give it a shot in the field. If I get slapped, I'm going to drop it. If it's better, maybe I'll want to, then I might want the knowledge, but don't put me through the pain of all the knowledge. Have me figure out how to say it. Find out it doesn't really work. I didn't get quota relief for that loss of three days. We have reserved the right to say our pain is worse than yours because I have a quota, but I also have a Rolex to prove that I'm better than everyone else. We've got to make the change and incorporate this. We can do it progressively, but there's an understandable fear of, well, what if we let go of that rope and all of a sudden the revenue, we, it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't, right? And we know it's not perfect, but we can, we're counting on it and it's marginal and it's getting a little more painful, but at least we know we can do it. What if we can't do capital allocation-based selling? What if we can't? speak to executives like a peer, then, wow, we're really screwed then. It's like, at some point, we got to make a decision. Definitely. Well, we could easily go on all day, Eric. So unfortunately, we'll have to wrap up. But a few questions we ask at the end of every podcast, one being that you are and have been a revenue executive for years. You are a prospect. What kinds of, I guess, emails or voicemails or calls, cold calls, would you answer? So this is an easy one because I get millions of these things all the time and I ignore them. Show me the money. Show me how you can help me get more revenue. Show me how you can make me more profitable and I'll consider it, right? But you've got to drop, you got to give me some numbers. If you're good at this and you, you're, you want to take my money, my money, I'm a private company. You know, I spend money on things that I think are going to make me money. So take the risk. If you're going to tell me, we can help you significantly grow, dramatically improve prof profitability, galactically, you know, improve your business. I can't fund adverbs. So you've got to monetize what you're selling and drop a number that you can defend. And if you do this and you say you do this, then you should be able to direct, give me some directional numbers that I can sink my teeth into. That's always the best way to start. Our last question of the day, we call it Acceleration Insights. Eric, what's something that you'd love to share with our audience that helps them be as successful as you are, be it on a personal basis or a business one? Uh, let's go to the business one. I'm still figuring out my personal narratives. The single most important thing that any salesperson can do right now is to understand which financial value drivers that your assets, what you're selling, 
change. So in other words, the first thing you got to know is, are we a revenue growth play? Are we a profitability of revenue play? Same velocity, same revenue, but we're driving more margin from it. Are we a working capital play? Are we optimizing free cash flow because we optimize the cash conversion cycle? Do we do many of those things? But the single biggest thing a salesperson can do to start engaging executives in business conversations, if you know what value drivers your assets impact, then, and you're telling the publicly traded companies, you can see all of their performance against those drivers, right? Go to, go to Seeking Alpha, go to a data book, go to, go to AlphaSense, but you can see how they're performing against those. And if you know how you correlate to that, and you can see their trailing 12-month performance, and you can see some of their forward-looking analyst expectations, now you can sell into deltas that they either are not going to hit or tracking to hit, but now have to maintain. That's one of the simplest things we can learn is value driver. Get a Deloitte value map and understand what it's saying. It'll change your life. Well, perfect. Eric, if anyone was uh, interested in talking to you more about these topics, what's your preferred method of communication? The easiest thing to do is just go to my LinkedIn profile and just say, hey, we need to chat. That's probably the easiest and best thing to do. Like most people, I don't like to answer my mobile phone if I don't know what you know who's calling me, right? I let that go through the voicemail. Leave me a voicemail if you want. But just go through LinkedIn and we can start a conversation. That's how most people do it. We can't thank you enough for your time today. We know how valuable it is, and it's been great having you on the show. It's been great being here. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. That does it for this episode, everyone. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your friends, your family, your kids, your dogs, and you can subscribe through YouTube, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer. I'm joined by my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.